This is Father Patrick Briscoe. And this is Father Gregory Pine. Welcome to Godsplaining. Thanks to all who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to Godsplaining wherever you listen to your podcast. Now, you might think that interacting with Godsplaining in the digital sphere is enough, mightn't you, Father Gregory? I might. Uh, is it enough? Um, based on the inflection with which you posed that question, I guess the answer is no. Hey, good call. You, you took the right cue there. No, no, it's not enough because <laughs> there are, in fact, other ways to encounter the Friars of Godswing, including our in-person retreats. Oh, my gosh. I should have seen that coming. That's right. Come on. Yeah. Wasn't that a seamless transition? That was excellent. Yeah, thank you. Uh-huh. Um, because we're millennials, we're going to congratulate each other and give everyone an award. Nice. So, <laughs> nice work, by everyone. the way. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. You're Gold a great star. guy with great yeah. skills. Love it. You're doing great. Uh, so if you would like to be congratulated and receive <laughs> a Godsplaining Award, come on one of our retreats Boom. where you can have a full millennial experience. Um, but we don't do retreats just for young people. No. In fact, our first retreat this year, which is going to be held at Malvern Retreat House. Malvern? Yeah. Malvern. Second one. Malvernius? Yeah, that's what it was called. Malvernalia? Yeah, in the oldie time. That's right. But they updated it. Malvern. Yeah, there it is. Yep. There we go. <laughs> the Malvern Retreat House in philadelphia yeah which is father gregory pine's home city uh-huh go eagles go birds yeah yep love that <laughs> okay um so this retreat is going to be held june 16th through 18th which at the time of this episode's appearing is in short order so, mm, so this is the set, last chance this is the last chance Ooh, so people got to get out there and that's could, an, this is an all-comers retreat so it's everybody that's right yeah so not just young adults no anyone who listens to the podcast bingo so check it out. All Please. the information is available at our website. Google the Godsplaining. Go to the website. And you can find all the information about this upcoming retreat. We have another retreat this summer. Uh-huh. That is a men's retreat. That's right. So and that means you do have to be a man. Correct. To come on that retreat. Yep. So that's different than the all's comer the all comers retreat. It's a half comers retreat. Half comers, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Fifty percent of the population <laughs> is invited to this retreat. Uh, which will be manful. Yep. At Camp Chasatanga. Nailed it. Come on. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Uh, Chasatanga Catalea. Yeah. You're crushing it. No, because I love that place. Yeah, I do too. It was fabulous. It was. They were extraordinary hosts to us. Yeah, they were. Uh, so the men's retreat is coming up in August. If you're a young guy who listens to the show, consider coming on that retreat. Yeah. There was outdoorsing stuff last year. There was. There will be outdoorsing stuff this year. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite memory from any of the retreats we've done? Um, favorite memory. There was a particular moment in the first young adult retreat where we were sitting out back at the Sweatbox retreat center and, um, we, yeah, we were just visiting with folks and it was, it was just like, it was kind of one of those golden moments. So I had that in my mind, but also this men's retreat, hiking that ravine and jumping in that, uh, that swimming hole. That was also very delightful. My favorite memory is when you did a backflip <laughs> off of that rock into the swimming hole, shouting USA, exactly. USA, USA. If you're not doing a USA <laughs> chant, you're not really living. Yeah. It was a men's retreat. It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, good. Okay. So, but listeners to the podcast should consider both of those things because retreats help break us of the kind of, um, Terpidity, which can stifle the spiritual life, right? Um, How's that for a word? Yeah. Can I get an award, please? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. Thank you. Turpitude. Ter I think it's, but whatever, yeah. you know? Yeah. I'm going with it. Turpidity. It's like when you're yeah. eating, what's the name of that fish that starts with a T? Tur, what? Tur, never mind. Turtle. Yeah, exactly. Trutlers. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 yeah. 
No, but the point is when you get into a funk in the spiritual life and you need to be revived, yep. a retreat is a great, a great way to go about it because you get um, God's waiting preaching, which yep. is a little bit more insightful than the intro to this episode has been. I would <laughs> say, <you know? laughs> there's a little bit more spiritual depth going on there. Um, but the opportunity to pray with other Christians which is extraordinary. The Lord said, "Right, wherever two or more are gathered in His name, there He will be in His, uh, there He will be in our midst." Right, um, and I certainly felt that on our retreats. That part of breaking the isolation which plagues our day is coming together because we want to mm-hmm. coming together because we're building a real community um, that that seeks Him together. So, please, um, listeners, consider either of those retreats, maybe both, if you're men. And, and also, if you're wondering whether there's going to be a young adults retreat, the answer is yes, but it'll be in the fall. I don't know if we've mentioned that to this point on episodes, but it's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Coming. Yeah. So you can come on that too. We're going to change you change that up. Yeah, exactly. Great. You got you to keep it Options. funky and fresh. That's right. Mm-hmm. I do want to ch- keep moving though. Okay. You know, in this line that we've been building about developing the spiritual life. Sounds right. Because one thinker that a lot of Americans look to mm-hmm. when they get stunk in <laughs> Turbot is the name of the fish that I was looking for. Nice. Turbot. There yeah. we go. Close. Okay. Yeah, okay. So, you know, I helped you out. Red snapper. Yeah. No, something else. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when you get into a funk in the spiritual life, though, you look to different authors. And one author that a lot of Americans like to consult is Thomas Merton, who was a monk who lived at Gethsemane Abbey in mm-hmm. Kentucky. And he holds a special place in the American Catholic imagination, especially for Catholics of a certain generation. Um, we have a word for them. It rhymes with Zoomer, uh-huh. but it's not. Um, so for Catholics of a particular uh, generation, uh, Thomas Merton holds a, an incredible swaying power. Um, but his life is not without controversy, and that's why I think it's worth talking about, um, yeah. because of the, the significant impact that his work's made. On the American church, the, the fact that so many people um, view him as, as a real light in the spiritual life. Um, they, they talk about being helped by his works, um, touched by his autobiography. And uh, that, bears, that bears due consideration on God's finding. It does. Yeah. No, I, I would count myself among those who have been positively influenced by Thomas Merton. So I think this episode is going to be a little bit dialectical because some of the best are. I think... A lot of our episodes could be entitled Things We're About to Disagree Upon, um, <laughs> but constructively, I hope. Um, so in yeah. this one, I, I really like Thomas Merton, but I've made a point of reading the early Thomas Merton. Mm. Um, and so that'd be like Thomas Merton of the 40s through the late 50s and even into the early 60s. And then when you get a little bit later in his life, things get a little muddier or the waters get a little bit muddier. So he was you know, he was born in the early 20th century. Uh, and he died, I want to say, in the late 1960s. Uh, and he kind of split time as a child between Long Island and France. So he's got a peculiar uh, kind of vantage on life and on the world. And you get a lot of this in the autobiography that you mentioned, The Seven-Story Mountain, which a lot of people take to be the 20th century equivalent of like Augustine's Confessions, mm-hmm. right? And and it's, it's a cool book to read because it's a kind of um, spiritual who's who. You encounter a lot of people along the way who are very significant in 20th century American Catholic life. Right. Like I'm thinking of um, like Catherine de Hook, Hook Doherty, 
um, who is associated with the Madonna House, whom he would have met uh, during his time in New York City. And then he studied at Columbia University. I think he wrote his thesis on William Blake. And while he was there, while he was um, you know, studying poetry, he was in conversation with Mark Van Doren, I think, who we know from How to Read a Book by Mortimer Adler and Mark Van, you know, so like associate, I think that's correct. I might have some Van Dorens mm, mixed up, but mm. Charles Van Doren is also in that conversation. But there's like a lot of different uh, Catholics of the 20th century who are, you know, part of his life. I'm thinking of the book by Paul Eli, The Life You Save May Be Your Own, where he highlights these four Catholic yeah, lives yeah, of the yeah. 20th century. Yep, you yep, have Walker yep. Percy, right. Dorothy Day, Flannery O'Connor and Thomas Merton. And the overlap among those thinkers, those authors is significant. And some of them were in correspondence and things like that. So it's cool. Like it's cool to have um, a Catholic cultural heritage or legacy that we can appeal to and kind of mine in the 21st century when a lot of people accuse us of not having a culture, not having a heritage. Uh, so I think for that reason, Thomas Merton is, is at the very least interesting. And then you come to discover shortly thereafter that he is also controversial so I think it's helpful to, yeah, to engage with him at least a little bit. One of the things that people say as you discuss Merton with them from the outset is they, they turn, as you, as you did at the beginning of um, this uh, investigation, we won't yet call it a defense, <laughs> uh, but in the, in, in the beginning of this Inquisition trial, uh, which we were conducting here on God's Way, that's not what's going on here, um, <laughs> in, in the middle of this conversation, at uh, the beginning of this conversation, you started to talk about uh, Seven Story Mountain and his autobiography, which was his first work. And the abbot of his community actually invited him to write it. So it wasn't uh, something that he undertook initially of his own desire. And then as he was writing it, he found that the words just spilled forth. And he took great delight in that, which shouldn't be a surprise because of his ability, his talent, um, the fact that he, was te- he had been teaching English uh, before entering the monastery. Um, but, but, he, but in writing the autobiography, it seemed that he really found himself. Yeah, yeah. And th- that comes through in the work in an amazing way. It has a very poetic title, right? Seven Story Mountain is a reference to your boy, my boy, Dante. Bingo. Uh, so we so we have this we have this great tradition that the bi- the autobiography is moving in, and we find uh, you know I we find throughout it this great virtue of seeking uh, that he, the reason people liken the autobiography to Augustine's Confessions, you know, as you mentioned, Father Gregory, is because Merton was was clearly searching for God. In a way that, in a way that many people had wanted to do, but maybe not done in their own lives. So when I when I talk to people about Merton, one of the things that they talk about is they say that uh, he taught them how to look for God, mm-hmm. and that there was a, a generation before us that needed to be reenchanted with God, mm-hmm. and that Merton's autobiography and some of his later contemplative works allowed them to do that to to discover first and foremost love, how to love God. Um, and how to t- how to talk about loving God, and I, I think part of the reason Merton was able to do that was because of his great love for poetry. Yeah, and y- you see that in the quality of his prose. When Pope Francis visited the United States, listeners might remember that he gave an, a- an address to the U.S. Congress, and he presented four figures of American life. Um, and one of the figures that Pope Francis invited uh, U.S. congressmen and U.S. congresswomen to meditate on. Was Thomas Merton? Hmm. I think that's very that, that's very interesting, and he shows, as you're arguing, part of our authentically American Catholic heritage. You know, we have like Thomas Merton, and then women saints who, against all odds, founded Catholic schools in log cabins in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and that's like that's like what we have in the, in the American tradition because we're a frontier church, we're a missionary church. So to arrive at a moment where we have someone like Thomas Merton, 
who's a great convert, who's really dynamic, who's asking all kinds of questions, who's um, producing a body of work that can really be studied and animated and that, and that people are finding enriches their own spiritual lives. All of this is, is really extraordinary yeah. and unique and different for the American church. Yep. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I'm thinking of the things that he wrote. I think, I think seven story mountain was late forties, mid to late forties. And that I love how I deal in approximations. Other more responsible podcasters would probably research these things proximate to the podcasting, but I instead, Trevor, well, never mind. Here we go. Um, so like late, mid to late forties and then into the fifties, you have seven story mountain, which is leading up to the moment of his entry. And then the next like narratival or autobiographical thing is the sign of Jonas, mm -hmm. which details his, his kind of years of formation and his early priesthood. And then contemporaneous with that, you have like some of his meditations in no man is an Island, which is super fruitful. Like the thoughts in that book on solitude have really made their mark on my humanity and my spiritual life. Um, and then shortly thereafter, I think he wrote the waters of Silloway, which is historical about the Cistercian reform, the OCSO, the Trappists, um, and goes all the way up to their new foundations in like the thirties, forties and fifties and kind of ends with, uh, the revolution in China and the way in which the Trappists were marched out of China, some of whom were martyred and things like that. It's very, mm -hmm. it's very intense. It's very touching. It's very beautiful. Um, and then you also have a lot of these, these, these books on spirituality that people have read like seeds of contemplation and new seeds of contemplation. And I think what I love about them is they, uh, impart a certain contemplative gaze. So, so Thomas Merton is a dyed in the wool contemplative in the sense that he thinks that only contemplation matters and the work of your hands, even in his own literary exploits, just doesn't matter by comparison. So there's a line, for instance, I think it's in the waters of Silloway where he's describing his own monastery, the mm -hmm. Abbey of Gethsemane, which has a kind of tortured history because the Trappists had tried to come and set up in Kentucky, like many of them had died on the way in the Ohio River and elsewhere. And then that foundation failed and they ended up in like Providence and then upper Manhattan, those fail, 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 fail. And then eventually Eventually, they end back up in Kentucky, I want to say in like 1848, um, and they start their work there. Um, but at some point in their history, they had a school, uh, which would have been typical of the American Benedictine tradition, and so they're kind of part and parcel with that. But there was a day when the school burned down, and he refers to it as the greatest day in the history of the monastery or something along those lines. Whoa. Yeah, yeah because I he thought, you know, that. like it, it, it totally compromised the integrity of their contemplative life insofar right. as they had this practical, this kind of active apostolic consideration on their hands, and it prevented them from living the, the fullness of their Trappist observance. And so he'll say things like that. And so he's not only a contemplative, dyed-in-the-wool contemplative, intense contemplative, but he's almost demagogic in his description of the contemplative life. He communicates his, his love of it with such an intensity, with such an urgency that you feel yourself kind of swept along by it. Like you can't imagine your future without a life of contemplative prayer. And if it is to be as such, you know it to be a failure. And then it like takes you a little while to kind of come down from it because it's just so, it's so intense. Um, so I think that there's such a, there's such a power, there's such a fervor that informs his prose. And sometimes, you know, it can be even a little bit dangerous for that reason, because you get swept along by it uh, and you find yourself making rash promises and just grandiose, you know, commitments without sufficient reflection. But there's, there's something to that, to have an American testify to Americans about the importance of the contemplative life, because we're so pragmatic, we're so practical, we've kind of cut our teeth, not giving you know, two rips about speculative considerations. And here we are being told that doesn't matter where or when you were born, you need this, like you need to gaze on God. Otherwise your life won't amount to anything worthy of note, you know? So I love him for that. He's life is marked by great tragedy. Uh, you know, he lost his parents 
uh, when he was very young. Um, and so, so, you, so you have that element of his life. You have the fact that he's coming of age in between the wars, in between World War I and World War II. You have that reality. Uh, and that, so that, and then that tragedy meets the great Catholic renewal of intellectual and liturgical life that happened in the early 20th century. So you have the the reform of the liturgy, um, the the movements of the liturgical reform that were the currents that led into the Second Vatican Council. All he's experiencing all of that in New York, yeah, which was the the scene where the first dialogue masses were being held right That's in the right. United States. Um, is so so, th- so th- this is all this is all in the air, and then you have the ru- the rise of um, a, theolo- a, a theological movement that you might know one or two things about called Thomism. Fascinating. Uh, which is the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. I've heard of him. Um, so he's kind of a serious guy. Yeah. And there were a lot of things going on <laughs> with his thought in the early 20th century that, you know, changed the course of the shape of the church for that century. Um, so, you know, just like to mention a thing that was in the air. Right. So you have these great currents of uh, intellectual renewal and uh, liturgical renewal. Um, and then after the war, after World War II, and as you mentioned, by, by this time, Merton's already in the monastery, you have a, you have an, a, a huge um, growth in vocations in the United States. Yeah. People come home from the war and they enter religious life. And a lot of, a lot of these young people were influenced by Merton, by his autobiography, which, which was almost immediately a bestseller. Uh, again, that's my impression. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, it was, that it was very widespread, very widely read. So, so you just have you just have him animating this this great current, or at least living in this great current of life, which is a a, a high point of life in the American Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And then again, I want to because we've said it a couple of times, but I think there's something about Merton being a convert yeah. that is so important in the life of the American Church. It Dorothy Day too, for that matter. Um, that that these great thinkers chose to join the church um, and didn't inherit. Catholicism uh, didn't inherit their faith from their family life. There, there's something, there's something deep in us in America that that we want to say. Look, you could have this too. You yeah. know, these these great ones did. Um, now, what about some of the cautions we should have about uh, about Merton? Obviously, there are a couple biographical points at stake here, and then some intellectual ones. So maybe let's start with questions uh, about his biography, and then uh, move through some some of the things we'd want to mention from his works. So I think. Uh, as for biography, two principal points that people will talk about, and you know, with just cause, are chastity, and then the consideration surrounding his death. So, with respect to chastity, and I'm not perfect on the details, and I don't know that anyone is quite perfect on the details, but it sounds like because of some medical condition, he was often enough in Louisville, Kentucky, which would be like an yeah, hour I think and fifteen it was a minutes. Major back surgery. Was it? Was that Memory it? Okay. Serves, okay. Yeah. So it would have been in Louisville, Kentucky, which would be maybe like an hour, an hour and fifteen minutes from his monastery, the Gethsemane Abbey, which is in New Haven or New Hope, Kentucky, uh, kind of in the, the Catholic Arts Holy Land there. there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and while he was there undergoing treatment, he basically fell in love with a nurse. Um, and it sounds like that love was reciprocated, and it sounds like they discussed that love in some way, shape, or form, but it doesn't sound like they acted on it. Um, so, you know, like there's a kind of scrutiny that comes with living a very public uh, life, you know, in the case of Thomas Merton and the fact that he, he writes about it, you know? Um, so there might be some, um, indiscretions when it comes to a, like a false transparency, uh, or some indiscretions when it comes to like the way that he interacted with this woman, the way in which he lived his vows, uh, of obedience and stability of place and of conversion of life, um, which entails poverty and chastity, uh, that, that would, 
Yeah, which which are certainly you know causes for concern. So it doesn't sound like they acted out of it, uh, but it does sound like there was certainly some indiscretion, some kind of immodesty in there uh, that yeah that people have retained uh, in their memories since. Which I don't is, know if you have other things. Yeah, and that, that's a good point just to drive something home to listeners for us all to remember because we think that uh, it could be easy to think that ch- violating chastity is only by some kind of physical action, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that there there are many things way upstream <laughs> for uh, b- before some kind of physical action occurs, right? Uh, and I do not think our culture, our American culture, is attentive to the ways that we need to guard our hearts. And some people will mock that language, um, but I think it is it is true and it is worth using, and it, and it brings up something that we need to be attentive to. We ju- we just need to be aware of how we feel when we interact with people, and uh, intentional about how we protect ourselves, about what those safeguards look um, look like. Uh, one of the things I believe that happened in this relationship was that Merton wrote this woman love poems. Ah, uh, yeah. That's a bit much. That's a uh, more than a bit th- much. That's that's uh, <laughs> you know I, I okay I just raised questions there okay but then uh, then we also had the circumstances of his death. Yeah. So again, I'm not entirely perfect on the details, but it sounds like he was at a conference in Thailand, I think, or in Bangkok, which is in Thailand, uh, and it was about like Eastern and Western mysticism. So he had become a kind of expert about this, which we'll cover in the final doctrinal point. Well, and it was a Hindu monk that. Uh, interestingly enough, directed him to read medieval Catholic sources in the beginning. Fascinating. So you have very early on in Merton's biography this kind of interplay between Eastern mysticism and Catholicism, yeah, which is a totally legitimate dialogue. That part I just want to. Yeah, it is take a legitimate dialogue, and it's you know has ancient roots, but it's also something that became very um, fashionable downstream of yep. Merton, and I think yeah, that yeah. part of our reception of his teaching is in part part of our reception of his teaching is is colored by that. Um, so he was at this. He had permission from his abbot to do this, right? But whether he should have even asked permission to do this as a monk, uh, that's worth considering, you know? Uh, he he had already gained pretty wide latitude within the community environment to do what he wanted. Like there was a hermitage on the property at which he spent a lot of time. He kind of had not like exclusive rights to it, but he had a lot of a lot of free play when it came to his living of the vow of obedience, I think. Um, but then he was at this conference in Bangkok and it's, it's there that he died. And the way that it's told is that he died of electrocution because like some bathroom appliance fell in the tub. There have other, there have been other people who have said that like the circumstances of it are kind of shady. So I don't know that we have the whole story or that we'll ever get the whole story. But the fact that he died outside of his monastery, you know, in the Far East, attending a conference about something which may or may not have pertained to the heart of the gospel is certainly cause for, for concern. So... I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, it's something sorrowful uh, and probably something that I should think well of every time <laughs> I leave the Priory. Like, yeah, right. do I want to die here? Um, so, but but you, ra- you raise an interesting doctrinal point, which is this question between the mysterious East and Christendom. Yeah. Uh, and this narrative, which, as you say, has changed certainly in the way that we've experienced these conversations downstream of Merton. I mean, he, he really impacted and shaped this dialogue uh, in the American church. Uh, so what kinds of things would we want to be cautious of uh, or at the least attentive to as we engage his works or or if we're interested in this crossover between Eastern mysticism and Christianity? Yeah, I think that um, this is when you get into the stuff from the 1960s is where you see a lot of this cropping up. 
and by my own admission, I haven't read any of this stuff because I've kind of been warned off it. Mm. Um, and that's not because I think that if I'm going to read it, then I'm going to get you know overwhelmed by how compelling an argument he makes and then led down the, the stray path. I don't think it's that so much. It's just I have limited time and I have a lot of books about Jesus Christ to read according to St. Thomas Aquinas, so I'm just kind of prioritizing them at the moment. Um, <laughs> but when it comes to him, I think a lot of us get this by way of his descendants or by way of his you know spiritual progeny mm-hmm. who are very passionate about how close western and eastern mysticism are but i think that um there's a sensibility widely held among professing christians or believing christians that comparative religions is kind of a bankrupt enterprise you know because like what's the sense in comparing something that is grace with something that isn't grace okay um so we believe that the church of christ subsists in the catholic church as lumen gentium describes it and as Benedict XVI, may he rest in peace, as he clarified that statement, he just said the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church, right? Subsisted in means est. (laughs) (laughs) It was such a great clarification. Yeah, so then Lumen Gentium will talk about how there are elements of grace and salvation outside of the visible bounds of the Catholic Church, but that they pertain to the Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. all right? So that they're a kind of overflow um, of Catholic life, right? So we think about um, the sacraments in you know, orthodoxy and, you know, you have some sacraments in Protestantism and, you know, the worship of the one true God and the covenant in Judaism, etc. So we want to affirm the good things which are present in other religions, but if they are present there, it's by virtue of the Catholic Church spilling over its own bounds, okay? It's not because, like, those religions save the people who profess those religions qua those religions. Mm. And I think that that's where sometimes the waters get muddied. When we start affirming everything, you know, besides Catholicism, it ends up sounding relativistic, right, uh, and indifferentist. And I think that that some things that, it seems to me, Thomas Merton uh, worked on and the way that he expressed them didn't do sufficient work for clarifying these points. Now, mind you, it was getting sussed out in the 1950s and 60s because Congar is weighing in on this and Journet is weighing in on this, and it's something that's hotly contested in the council itself with the Annunciation of Lumen Gentium. So we, we shouldn't fault Thomas Merton for trying to discern something which is not so much an open question as right. it is the manner of its expression still being right. refined. Right. But I think that um, you, we, we, we see other people do it in different ways. Like we read this book by Jacques Maritain, The Degrees of Knowledge, Distinguish in Order to Unite um, in our Thomistic Seminar class. And he's doing something similar, but, but yeah, it's just you're only saved by our Lord Jesus Christ, and you're only saved by His grace, and His grace flows within the setting of the church. It's just, I mean, it's not, it's not intolerant to say that. It's not bigoted to say that. It's just, the, it's just the truth. And the greatest mercy that you can extend to other people is to insist upon that truth, because otherwise they can't partake of it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this is kind of irresponsible insofar as I'm explaining Thomas Merton by means of those downstream of him who might be more or less Absolutely. faithful recipients no, but we, of the but teaching. We do have, but we do, have to, we do have to do that in order to look back and understand where we, what it was that we received from him and where we're at now. So, yeah. so as we're kind of adjudicating how we're going to interact with this towering figure whose works are you know, really extraordinary and totally unique in, in the life of the American church, I, I think we have to say that. And we we have to show um, we have to show and revisit them in accordance with the doctrine as it's been clarified now. If someone wanted to start with Merton, where would they start? Where should they start? Yeah, I'd say Seven Story Mountain, with the caveat that the first hundred pages are just so boring. They're just so boring. Um, so I never I, finished it. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. The first I stole pa- my father's copy in high school and looked in it a little bit, basically. Okay. And then in college, read "No Man Is an Island" and "New Seeds of Contemplation." Awesome. Both of which I think are extraordinary. They are. 
Yeah, so so I would say Seven Story Mountain, first hundred pages, even if you have to skip it, it's like he's describing the spiritual atmosphere of the place in France where he grew up for a time and the place in Long Island where he grew up for a time, and it's like, I don't care so much. But once he gets into the who's who's he part and he's describing Catholic life in, in New York and what drew him to the faith and what, you know, like how his life kind of shaped up at St. Bonaventure University or St. Bonaventure College maybe at the time and then how he ended up looking into the monks and then... Yeah, like even the early life of that monastery, they had men sleeping in barns because they didn't have sufficient number of it's cells amazing. to accommodate. It's, it's just amazing. insane. Um, so I'd recommend that. Um, for the historians among you, Waters of Siloe is really cool about the Trappist reform and the um, the sign of Jonas. is also really beautiful for anyone like in formation because it's a very honest spiritual journal about his time in formation. It's not a straight bio- or autobiography. It's more so like, yeah, his journal entries over the course of I think seven or eight years. Man, I'm just horseshoeing and hand grenading the whole way through this episode. <laughs> um, but it's cool just to see him approach ordination and then in the years subsequent to his ordination. And I would say those those spiritual classics, which people cite and use, are great. No Man is an Highland is fantastic. And Seeds of Contemplation and New Seeds of Contemplation are, are also super helpful. He's got other things like the Ascent. Oh, gosh, man. He's got a Christology work, the name of which I've forgotten. But once you start hearing like contemplatives in action and things along those lines and East and West stuff, then I think that's where you have to be a little more discerning uh, or just a little more cautious in your approach because um, what he's proposing is more so exploratory than it is settled, and it's less so inspired by the Cistercian Trappist spirituality, which is you know ever ancient, ever new, uh, and more so by contemporary currents of, what, 20th century Catholic life. Fabulous. Yeah. Hey, I think that I think we managed a decent introduction there. A couple, a couple of reasonable things, maybe for people who don't know Merton uh, that well, uh, you know. And I and I really do think this is a fair introduction to say, look, really extraordinary things mark the life and work of this man. There are questions, however, that should give readers, listeners, some pause. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not responsible for defending everything under the sun. We can say some things are good and some things are bad with respect to human actions. Uh, When it comes to human persons, right, we want to suspend judgment until such time as we have further details, and we want to be generous in our judgment insofar as people can stand to suffer, even after their death from our judgments. Um, But we also don't want to define ourselves by contrariety, say like, you know, boomers like this, so we're going to reject it because boomers like other things that we have chosen to reject. It's like, I think that we should take it on its own terms and then um, judge it, weigh it, maybe incorporate it, and move on. Do you have to read it? No. You know, it's a very recommendation light. But if you read it, will you, as a result of which, become, you know, wonky in your faith? No. I think that there are things to gain. There are things from which we can grow. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of God's Planning. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review to our podcast. If you'd like to donate to the podcast through Patreon, follow the link in the description. You can also follow the links in the show notes to shop God's Planning merch and to get information on upcoming God's Planning events like the All Comers Retreat at Malvern. This is, again, your last chance to make a registration, make a reservation, to get your name down, to sign up for that retreat. There we go. <laughs> <clears throat> Nailed it. Uh, and, and to join us in August for the men's retreat uh, if you are a man. <laughs> I think that's all we have for today. Please continue to pray for us and know of our prayers for you. God bless.